Good evening. Opening arguments in the trial of Derek Chauvin, the former police officer charged in the killing of George Floyd. What happens when cops call the cops? Vaccine passports and restaurants that are suffering in New York. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Monday, March 29th, 2021. Salvage teams on Monday finally freed the colossal container ship stuck for nearly a week in the Suez Canal, ending a crisis that had clogged one of the world's most vital waterways and halted billions of dollars a day in maritime commerce. A flotilla of tugboats helped by the tides wrenched the bulbous bow of the skyscraper-sized Ever Given from the canal's sandy bank, where it had been firmly lodged since March 23rd. Buffeted by a sandstorm, the Ever Given had crashed into a bank of a single-lane stretch of the canal a few miles north of the southern entrance near the city of Suez. That created a massive traffic jam that held up $9 billion a day in global trade and strained supply chains already burdened by the coronavirus pandemic. And in the United States, the killing of George Perry Floyd on a street corner 10 months ago under the knee of former police officer Derek Chauvin was played over and over again as lawyers made their opening statements behind plexiglass shields to protect from the coronavirus. The central theme of the trial in a Minneapolis courtroom is the video of Floyd pleading, I can't breathe 27 times over nine and a half minutes as he died. I can't breathe. Please, the name of the... You gonna let him kill that man in front of you, bro? Huh? Huh? Like what? Bro, he's not even fing moving right now, bro. Prosecutor Jerry Blackwell showed the jurors the footage at the earliest opportunity during opening statements after telling them that the number to remember was 9 minutes, 29 seconds, the amount of time Floyd was pinned to the pavement. So let's begin by focusing then on what we will learn about this 9 minutes and 29 seconds. And you will be able to hear Mr. Floyd saying, please, I can't breathe. Please, man, please. In this 9 minutes and 29 seconds, you will see... That is, Mr. Floyd is handcuffed there on the ground. He is verbalizing 27 times, you will hear, in the 4 minutes and 45 seconds. I can't breathe. Please, I can't breathe. You will see that Mr. Chauvin is kneeling on Mr. Floyd's neck and back. He has one knee on his neck, and the knee on his back is intermittently off and on on his back, as you will be able to see for yourself in the, the video footage. You will hear Mr. Floyd as he's crying out, you hear him at some point cry out for his mother when he's being squeezed there. He's very close to his mother, you will learn. You will hear him say, tell my kids I love them. Uh, you will hear him say about his fear of dying. He says, I'll probably die this way. I'm through. I'm through. They're going to kill me. They're going to kill me, man. You will hear him crying out, and you will hear him cry out in pain. My stomach hurts. My neck hurts. Everything hurts. Uh, you'll hear that for yourself. Please, I can't breathe. Please, your knee on my neck. Uh, you will hear it, and you'll see at the same time while he's crying out, Mr. Chauvin never moves. The knee remains on his neck. Sunglasses remain undisturbed on his head, and it just goes on. Uh, you will hear his final words when he says, I can't breathe. Before that time, you'll hear his voice get heavier. 
you will hear his words further apart. You will see that his respiration gets shallower and shallower and finally stops when he speaks his last words. I can't breathe. With 400 potential witnesses, 50,000 pieces of evidence and numerous eyewitnesses, it's going to be a long trial. But an early promise by the prosecutors to tell the story of how police dispatcher Jenna Scurry was compelled to do something she'd never done before. Call the cops on the cops. Jenna Scurry is going to come to talk to you also. There was a fixed police camera that was trained on this particular scene and she could see through the camera what was going on. You will learn that what she saw was so unusual and for her so undisturbing, I'm sorry, so disturbing, that she did something that she had never done in her career. She called the police on the police, a 911 dispatcher. She called Sergeant David Plinker, who's gonna come in to testify. She called him to report what she saw because she found it just that disturbing. She will tell you that she felt that she saw a man literally lose his life. And uh, you will hear her testify. Minneapolis prosecutor Jerry Blackwell the young dispatcher was the prosecution's first witness. She said in her conversation with the police sergeant about what she saw on a live video feed, saying to the sergeant, Chauvin's supervisor, you can call me a snitch if you want to. It was a gut instinct of, in the incident, something's not going right, whether it be they needed more assistance or if There were, there just something wasn't right. I don't know how to explain it. It was a gut instinct to tell me that now we can be concerned. And what did you decide to do? I took that instinct and I called the sergeant. And do you recall who the sergeant was that you talked to? It was Sergeant Kluger. And um, why did you call a sergeant? The sergeant is the police officer's supervisor. Um, you're not uh, a Minneapolis police officer. No. You haven't gone through like the use of force training. No. But in your experience, you felt something was wrong here that a sergeant needed to know about. Correct. Um, if this was a form of use of force, I was calling to let them know. Hey, what's up? Hey. So um, I didn't know. You can call me a snitch if you want to. But we have the cameras up for three twenties call. Oh, did they already put him in the? They must have already started moving him. Um, and 320 over at Cup Foods. Okay. Um, I don't know if they had use force or not. They got something out of the back of the squad, and all of them sat on this man. So I don't know if they needed you or not, but they haven't said oh. anything to me yet. Yeah, they haven't said anything unless it's just a take count, which doesn't count, but okay. I'll find out. No problem. I, we don't get to ever see it, so when we see it, we're just like, well, uh, well that looks okay. a little different. <laughs> all right, thank all you. Right. Jenna Scurry is a dispatcher for the city of Minneapolis. She was on duty May 25th, 2020. Meanwhile, Chauvin's attorney, Eric Nelson, countered by arguing Derek Chauvin did exactly what he had been trained to do over his 19-year career, and then focused on allegations that George Floyd was high on a speedball, a combination of methamphetamine and the opiate fentanyl, and that Floyd died of his comorbidities, mainly heart disease. Nelson says Floyd was taking drugs in his vehicle before police arrived. This will include evidence that while they were in the car, Mr. Floyd consumed what were thought to be 
two Percocet pills. Mr. Floyd's friends will explain that Mr. Floyd fell asleep in the car and that they couldn't wake him up, that they kept trying to wake him up to get going, that they thought the police might be coming because now the store was coming out. And they kept trying to wake him up. And in fact, one of these friends called her daughter, Miss Hill, Shawanda Hill, called her daughter, Shakira Prince, to come and pick her up because they couldn't keep Mr. Floyd awake. During the course of the investigation, two search warrants were executed on the Mercedes-Benz. BCA agents located various pieces of evidence during both of these searches, including two pills. That later analysis by the BCA revealed to be a mixture of methamphetamine and fentanyl. This is what's called a speedball, a mixture of an opiate and a stimulant. You will learn that these uh, pills were manufactured to have the appearance of Percocet. While standing next to the Mercedes-Benz, Officer King and Officer Lane both asked Mr. Floyd what he was on. And he says he is on nothing. You will see that three Minneapolis police officers could not overcome the strength of Mr. Floyd. Mr. Chauvin stands 5'9", 140 pounds. Mr. Floyd is 6'3", weighs 223 pounds. Derek Chauvin's defense attorney, Eric Nelson, defense lawyers say they will introduce toxicology reports from the hospital where George Floyd was taken that will allegedly show amounts of methamphetamine and fentanyl in his system. In related news, last night, a protest was held at a church in Minneapolis. The Reverend Al Sharpton and lawyer Ben Crump spoke. The fact that they will try and discredit and besmirch the character of George Floyd does not in any way explain how you with a man laying helpless, unarmed, for 8 minutes and 46 seconds, at no point did you stop and deal with the value of his life. And they will have you believe, Philonis, because he had a trace amount of drugs found in his system. They're saying, oh, that's what killed him, not what Derek Chauvin did. Y'all understand, George Floyd was walking, talking, and breathing just fine until that officer put his knee on his neck. And the only thing that killed George Perry Floyd Jr. on May 25th, 2020, here in Minneapolis, Minnesota, was an overdose of excessive And now is lawyer Ben Crump. Before him, Reverend Al Sharpton. Chauvin, 45, is charged with unintentional second-degree murder, third-degree murder, and manslaughter. The most serious charge, the second-degree murder count, carries up to 40 years in prison. This is the first trial ever televised in Minnesota. And in Washington, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki told reporters President Biden was following the trial closely. 
At the time of George Floyd's death, he talked about this as being an event that really opened up a wound in the American public. And it really brought to light for a lot of people in this country just the kind of racial injustice and inequality that many communities are experiencing every single day. And he'll be watching it closely. He'll certainly be provided updates. Obviously, this is a trial that's working its way through a law enforcement or a legal process, so we wouldn't weigh in further than that. But these were events that at the time he spoke about as being just a reminder of also the need to, and it certainly impacted how he's thought about in his own government, making equity central to what we do. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. President Joe Biden and a top health official warned Monday that too many Americans are declaring virus victory too quickly, appealing for mask requirements and other restrictions to be maintained or restored to stave off a fourth surge of COVID-19. The head of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Rochelle Walensky, said she had a feeling of impending doom if people keep easing off. When I first started at CDC about two months ago, I made a promise to you. I would tell you the truth even if it was not the news we wanted to hear. Now is one of those times when I have to share the truth and I have to hope and trust you will listen. I'm gonna pause here, I'm gonna lose the script, and I'm gonna reflect on the recurring feeling I have of impending doom. We have so much to look forward to, so much promise and potential of where we are, and so much reason for hope, but right now I'm scared. Um, I know what it's like as a physician to stand in that patient room, gowned, gloved, masked, shielded, and to be the last person to touch someone else's loved one because their loved one couldn't be there. We have come such a long way. Three historic scientific breakthrough vaccines, and we are rolling them out so very fast. So I'm speaking today not necessarily as your CDC director, not only as your CDC director, but as a wife, as a mother, as a daughter, to ask you to just please hold on a little while longer. And that's Jen Walensky. She's a head of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The warnings came as Biden laid out hopeful new steps to expand coronavirus vaccinations with all adults to become eligible over the next five weeks. Biden announced plans to expand the number of retail pharmacies that are administering vaccines and investments to help Americans get to vaccination sites. But the optimism was tempered by stark warnings about the potential for another wave of cases. And in New York, Governor Andrew Cuomo says New York State residents over 30 will be eligible for COVID-19 vaccinations starting Tuesday, and everyone over 16 will be eligible starting April 6th. Vaccine eligibility in the state had previously been restricted to people over 50, people in certain job categories, and those with certain health conditions. The embattled governor called the expanded eligibility a monumental step forward in the fight to beat covid and well ahead of the timetable set by the White House. Cuomo says that more than 9 million vaccine doses have been administered statewide since the vaccination effort began in December. Meanwhile, restaurants continue to take a hit during this time of pandemic, even though indoor dining capacities increased to 50% in New York City. Many restaurants are still struggling to pay their bills, particularly the rent. Hannah Fulmer reports. Would you say this is the hardest time that you've had as a restaurant owner? Yeah, without a doubt, no doubt. No doubt. We've been around 30 years, so we've been through hell and high water. 9-11, the bombing at World Trade Center prior to that. So we've been through a lot. Obviously, nothing compares to this. 
That's Greg Yearman. He's the general manager and operator of Burrito Bar in Prospect Heights. Indoor dining capacity increased to 50% on March 19th, but Yearman says he can't allow more customers into his restaurant because of social distancing rules. He's still struggling to pay his bills. So we had about 35 to 40 employees. Now we have about 12 employees. Um, So I'm picking up the slack for the bussers, for the bartenders, for the food runners that we don't have. It's ironic that our sales are down 65%, but my responsibilities have increased significantly. Where we have a lot of bills that we haven't paid from the past, because we're just trying to keep up with what the current bills are right now. What are the other things you've been doing to help make up for that shortfall? Uh, I haven't paid rent in four months. Yerman means he hasn't paid his full rent for the last four months, and he isn't alone. 92% of restaurants could not pay their full December rent, according to the latest survey from the New York City Hospitality Alliance. Fortunately for me, we've been in the same location for 15 years, and we've been a good tenant for 15 years. Our landlord has been extremely patient. So the rent has been reduced for the last four months to a number that works for both of us. But the four months prior to that, we haven't paid because we we don't have the money to pay. And that rent was not negotiated down. How long that's going to last, I don't know. And if your landlord hadn't agreed to that, what would have happened? Probably we'd be closed. Uh, If he demanded that we paid the rent, uh, I think there's very good likelihood that we would have had to shut down. Yerman is lucky. Less than half of restaurants have had their rent waived or deferred during COVID-19. An even smaller portion, about a third, have been able to negotiate their rent with their landlord. James Ellis is the executive director for the North Flatbush Avenue Business Improvement District. He has talked to a few landlords who have entered into agreements like this. I think most, many of them have been really trying to work with their tenants. Um, you know, a lot of people are trying different things, percentage of sales, because I think, honestly, the landlords are a little uncertain and maybe a bit nervous because they don't want to lose an existing tenant, um, especially the restaurant. They're job creators and they, they employ a lot of people. I think that's a strategic decision. Ellis says some landlords have been seeking him out proactively. They're looking for help on behalf of their tenants. They ask Ellis to feature the restaurants on social media or highlight their operating hours which I think is another tactic that some landlords are taking more hands-on approach to support their tenants rather than like, okay, if they survive, they survive. I have one landlord I spoke to and he says, you know, listen, he goes, I'm doing what I can do. You know, I want him to survive and I don't want to go under either. Some landlords and tenants have their eyes on the Save Our Storefronts bill in the New York State Senate. If it passed, landlords would take a loss on some of their rent, small businesses would pay a portion, and the state government would be on the hook for the rest. But for now, the bill is sitting in committee and restaurants will have to look elsewhere for help. Hannah Fulmer, WBAI News, New York. Thanks, Hannah. And recycling is in crisis in the United States. The state spends tens of millions of dollars in taxpayer money to recycle annually, and yet 860,000 tons of recycling ends up in landfills anyway. Lawmakers are trying to create less waste with a new product, Producer Responsibility Bill. Clark Adamatis has more. New York State residents have been recycling and doing their part since 1986. They create 1.5 million tons of curbside recyclables every year. But the process that turns a plastic bottle into something usable again is inefficient and expensive. Lawmakers are trying to deal with that. They are trying to get manufacturers to use less packaging. A new bill on the New York Senate floor will help cut back on what's in our trash bins. 
Andrew Radin, recycling director in Onondaga County, says the bill will shift the cost of recycling from consumers to manufacturers. We estimate that cost to be over $80 million now a year. Radin says that $80 million could be used by municipalities for public services like roads, parks, and elder care. If manufacturers have to pay for their excess packaging, they might think twice about how much they use. They would be incentivized to use less packaging. Two Long Island lawmakers, Assemblymember Steve Engelbright, who is the chair of the Assembly Environmental Conservation Committee, and State Senator Todd Kaminsky, chair of the Senate Environmental Conservation Committee, are sponsoring the Extended Producer Responsibility Bill, or the EPR Bill. Here's Senator Kaminsky. You get that Amazon package, you open it. In the big box is a smaller box. In the smaller box is another box that may have like a tube of toothpaste. And don't judge me. After this there'll be far less packaging. And when you look at holiday time and what's out on people's front stoop, it won't be that heaps and heaps of packaging. Environmental activist Rob Van Denebiel, founder of the social media presence, the eco-friendly beer drinker, says the EPR bill will put pressure on the beer industry. They'll have to cut down on single-use packaging. Does every single consumer that walks out of a brewery tap room or a, a liquor store need to have their cans or bottles in a four-pack or six-pack holder? No. They could bring reusable bags. They could bring portable coolers. They could carry their beer home that way. The bill is not without its critics. Dr. Calvin Lacken says it could lead to manufacturers using more resources to create recyclable packaging. He argues that single-use plastics are better for the environment. It radically increased the shelf life. Even though you can't recycle it, it's way less physical material. It ends up being better for the environment. But the bill sponsors say that by requiring corporate producers to chip into the end-of-life costs for their products, we are not only holding the line on taxes, but we are also protecting our planet and its natural resources for generations to come. Clark Adamitis, WBAI News, New York. Thank you, Clark. And finally, a joint World Health Organization-China study on the origins of COVID-19 says that transmission of the virus from bats to humans through other animals is the most likely scenario and that a lab leak is extremely unlikely. That's according to a draft copy. The team proposed further research into every area except the lab leak hypothesis, a speculative theory that was promoted by former President Donald Trump, among others. It also said the role played by a seafood market where human cases were first identified was uncertain. The report, due out tomorrow, is being closely watched since discovering the origins of the virus could help scientists prevent future pandemics, but it's also extremely sensitive since China bristles at any suggestion that it's to blame for the current pandemic. And that's some of the news for Monday, March 29, 2021. The news producer, Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul Durienzo for the WBAI Evening News. Thanks for listening.